It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The number of hate crimes against religious minority communities has surged in recent years. The Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, reports the fatal shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh this month was the deadliest attack ever in America on the Jewish community. The Aspen Institute Zenat Rahman says it's critical to build bridges across religious differences. Many Americans are motivated and driven by their faith, and it matters a lot. America is the most religiously diverse and religiously devout country in the world. And so we have a lot to learn, I think, about one another, particularly those Americans who are from minority faith backgrounds. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. For some religious minority groups, hate is on the rise. In 2017, the number of anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. rose 57 percent. It's the largest single-year increase on record, according to the ADL. And the Muslim community saw a nearly 20% increase in hate crimes in 2016, reports the FBI. In this era of fragmentation, how can religious communities find commonality and combat hate? Zinat Rahman is the project director of the Inclusive America Project at the Aspen Institute. The project released a report this year about how a polarized America can embrace people of all faiths. It's called Pluralism in Peril. Meryl Chertoff, who leads the Institute's Justice and Society program, is the executive editor of the report. We'll hear from her today, as well as president of the El Hebri Foundation, Farhad Latif, and Christian Picciolini, a former white supremacist who now helps others counter racism and violent extremism. They spoke on June 28th of this year. Here's Zina Rahman. So today we're going to talk about solutions. Religious pluralism is the appreciative engagement of America's religious diversity. Religious pluralism is embedded in our First Amendment's guarantee of free exercise and non-establishment of any one faith. So I ask each of you to begin by briefly introducing yourselves and answering the question, why do you do this work? Farhan, we can start with you. Sure. Thank you. When I was in college, I I moved here uh, after living in multiple countries and growing up across the globe. And when I was a student, I noticed that there was a time when there wasn't a place for students to pray on campus. And they said, if you want to organize, create a club. If you have a club, you can go ahead and pray. So I helped organize some of these Muslim students, started a club called the Muslim Student Association, and found a place to pray. And when I became the president of that club, my first day of president was 9-11. And I had had no idea what I'd signed up for. I found myself at that moment being at the center of a lot of attention, a lot of Islamophobic activity. People threw beer bottles on my car in retaliation. We were very upset, of course, what happened on that day and were mourning the lives. Um, a student on our campus, Ahmed, uh, his philosophy professor threw him down the stairs, pushed him down the stairs and told him to go back where he came from. And he's an American citizen, fourth generation. My aunt was going to work in the morning and uh, was called a racial slur uh, and to go back where she came from. So there's a lot of Islamophobic activity and we felt there was a need to do some bridge building work, work with people of different faiths and communities and do some bridge building work. So that was part of what got me into this. On the same token, when I was looking at my own community, the Muslim community, uh, we noticed that there was work to be done to fight against intolerance within the community, to fight against racism, work on gender equity, misogyny, there wasn't enough religious, religious literacy. And I got confronted by this radical imam who was spewing this hate speech every Friday. Uh, we took him on and in retaliation started receiving death threats. Ultimately, I was attacked, it broke my arm, broke my ribs. Um, it was a very challenging time of my life. Fast forward 18 years later today, I'm heading up a foundation that's focused on these two issues. Number one, Uh, focusing and working in partnership with allies to focus on inclusion in the country uh, and to see how we can partner on common cause issues that lead to a better understanding and uh, creating space for everyone. Uh, And uh, and secondly, working within Muslim communities to take on some of the challenges around, um, you know, intolerance, uh, focusing on inclusion, working on gender equity, uh, issues around race. Uh, So that's kind of what brought me to this work. And today, two days later, after hearing about the Muslim ban, Um, and other issues that are taking place in the country, 
and the crimes, you know, the stats that you listed, I feel the urgency is even greater and it keeps me plugged in to do this work. So, thank you. Thanks for Christian. <clears throat> thank you for having me. The opportunity to tell my story is, is very important to me because I know uh, that I am privileged to do so. Uh, there may be a lot of folks who um, might have darker skin than I do that wouldn't get this opportunity, and I really appreciate that. Um, what led me here? Uh, when I was 14 years old uh, in 1987, I was recruited into America's first neo-Nazi skinhead group. Uh, I spent eight years until I was 22 as um, a member, an eventual leader, uh, and somebody who was very good at spreading propaganda. I've since, for the last 23 years, uh, been trying to dismantle white supremacy uh, and to help people disengage uh, from extremism in general. Uh, I now run an organization called the Free Radicals Project, uh, which is a global intervention and prevention network uh, focused on all types of extremism because what I've seen uh, is that there really is very little difference on why somebody might join a Nazi group or a group like ISIS or even a cult or perhaps even become an active shooter. And I do this work uh, because at 14 years old when I was recruited, I felt as though I didn't have any outlets. I didn't have uh, a good understanding of what my identity, uh, community, or purpose in life was. And I hope to be that person uh, for you know, other 14-year-olds through 100-year-olds uh, that I wish would have been there for me. Thank you, Meryl. Well, my story is not as dramatic as, as the other two. Um, but I will say that my commitment to this began uh, because I grew up in the most diverse city in the world, New York City, um, and learned from a very early age to appreciate diversity and, and appreciate difference and be curious about people who are different from me. Um, and that's why on 9-11 I was so wounded because the city that I loved had, was attacked by people who were opposed to the entire idea of getting along with each other. The attack on New York was, was not an accident. It was attacking a way of life. And that was the way of life that we all cherish, which is the First Amendment value of people from different backgrounds being able to exercise their religious faith, not have faith embodied in the state, but be able to, to develop their autonomy and develop their freedom. And I saw it again when there was the Islamophobia, which we saw growing out of the Park 51 situation. That's the, the Ground Zero Mosque. And again, I had to ask myself, is this the New York that I grew up in? Is this the New York I love? Because the New Yorkers that I knew would be able to put aside their differences and find constructive solutions to these problems. And so the question is, what is it that we lost? And that became a driving passion for me. So in 2011, at the Aspen Institute, through the Justice and Society program, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to found the Inclusive America Project and we wanted to look at how we constructively engage American religious diversity. So we created uh, a distinguished panel led by Madeleine Albright and David Gergen. We looked at the problem in terms of uh, five sectors we thought could have impact, academia, the government, media, youth service organizations, um, and uh, religiously affiliated institutions. We made recommendations. And we thought at that point, well, we're going to do dissemination. Then 2016 came along, and we realized that, in fact, the situation was deteriorating because people were seizing uh, on uh, the differences between us. They were exploiting the differences between us. And instead of healing, they were actually throwing salt into the wounds. So we produced a second report, which we have here today, Pluralism in Peril. And we focused on three things. First of all, how do we build alliances? Second, how are we resilient? And third, how do we embed basic principles of religious literacy and also constitutional literacy, the civic education that young people need so that they understand that we're all tied to one another and that, that my religious freedom depends on your religious freedom. Farhan referenced the, the Supreme Court ruling of the Muslim ban from a couple of days ago. And as you're saying, this is not the New York you, you know, I think, is this the America that we know? And so what do you, all of you think that um, 
this ruling of the Muslim ban does to the narrative of America and, and specifically Muslims in America? Well, you know, I think first of all, it, it, it feeds the radicalization of people. I think when, uh, you know, we marginalize people, they develop, uh, some of them might develop grievances. And, uh, you know, I've seen this happen over and over again in, in communities, even outside the Muslim community. Uh, but it's driven by fear rhetoric. And in this instance, it's driven by fear rhetoric from the very top um, and disinformation as well. Um, and I, you know, I think that that is meant to divide us. Fear, you know, hatred is born of ignorance. Fear is its father and isolation is its mother. You put those two together and if we're afraid of uh, getting to know the people that we think are different, um, sometimes that turns into uh, hate. And we're seeing a lot of that now, especially with the rise in hate crimes uh, you know, that we're seeing. People are uncertain, and uncertainty, uncertainty drives fear. And I think that that feeds these types of hate movements. I think one of the things that America has been so great about is creating a sense of belonging for, for people here from different backgrounds, you know, especially compared to some of the European context where immigrant communities um, have had a harder time sort of feeling at home. So. Uh, when you looked at American Muslim community studies from Pew and other places, they would talk about this great sense of belonging that American Muslims have. But when instances like this happen, um, we're not looking at the legal sense or uh, those pieces, but from a narrative sense, it really takes away from the sense of belonging that you are part of this community, that you're part of this country. Um, it's important for people to realize American Muslims make up three to four million uh, members of American society. And 20 to 25% of them are from the African-American community who've been here since the slave trade. And so they are as American as it gets, basically. You know, they've been here since the beginning. Um, when these conversations begin of, of being otherized, of being something else, um, it leads to so many different facets of how it gets trickled down into communities, from hate crimes to bullying to incidences of uh, just uh, uh, making communities become more insular and go into their own cocoons. And yeah, so there's, there's a whole host of things that happen. And it's very unfortunate. I will say that you know, there are people in this room who were there when, the, you know, when the, we heard the news two days ago in the audio, you know, outside the Supreme Court. And although we were sad to hear about you know, what has happened and, and the conversation that's happening, it was also very exciting to see the solidarity that we saw from people from across different groups come together and say that we're with you, that you're not alone, this is not the America that we feel uh, that we're proud of. And so our hope is that you know, we can turn the tide regardless of where things are today. So I'm a proud American exceptionalist. And one of the things that makes this country exceptional is that we don't stamp on people's passport what their origin is. We're all, if you carry an American passport, you're an American. And the idea that in this country that we would start to draw those distinctions is deeply troubling and sends a message around the world that we no longer exercise moral leadership, that, um, that we are no longer a light to the world. And um, that is very troubling. It suggests a deep change. And, and this is, it, we're not the only country where this is happening. I mean, this is happening all over Europe. It's happening around the world. It's happening in the Philippines. Um, so, uh, so we are not alone in this, but we would like to think that we are better. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for more great listening, Aspen Ideas To Go is easy to find. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and Sirius XM's Insight Channel. That's Channel 121. Subscribe to the show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Don't miss out on our weekly offerings of thoughtful discussion and innovative ideas. Let's get back to today's conversation. Here's Zenat Rahman. talk a little bit more about um, the religious literacy and constitutional literacy that you mentioned um, in your opening and what it means for an audience of people who are interested in this issue and want to engage. Um, can you just expound on those terms a little bit more? Sure. And what do we do if we are interested in this? Absolutely. So, um, so I, I want to echo um, what Zeno said at the beginning about um, uh, the, the idea that um, we all need to know about each other and um, 
we need to have education for young people, better civic education for young people. And a part of the civic education has to do with what matters to people. And religion matters to a lot of people. I mean, there are many people in this room, probably, who came to this country in order to be able to exercise their religious freedom. This goes all the way back to the founding of the Republic. Um, and the founders were concerned about religion because they understood that religion was the one thing which might have a higher claim on people than this wonderful new country that they were building. So they wanted to find a way to keep the two spheres separate so that neither would endanger the other. And they were all geometricians, so they came up with a geometric balance, non-establishment, and uh, on the other side, free exercise. And um, we need to educate young people about that, make them understand not only what the rules are, but also the content and the history and what that has meant. Um, so that's something which is basic. That's kind of the constitutional literacy side of it. And there's a wonderful line of cases out of the Supreme Court, which can be studied by even pretty young students. Um, and you know, when people talk about the First Amendment, everybody thinks free speech, but they don't think about freedom of religion quite as quickly. Uh, and we need to educate young people about that. And that can be started in the very early years and go all the way up to the university level. And it, in fact, it seems that, it, that some of our adults need education on that as well. We also need to teach young people religious literacy, which is enough about both their own faith and other faiths that they understand enough about what other people believe so as not to be threatened about by, by that. And they, the third thing that they need is they need skills of dialogue. So they need to learn to have conversations with each other and learn to be able to talk about difference. Um, and so those are the three things that we think are essential. Um, and we think that these need to be embedded in the educational system. This can be done through schools, but we also think that one very promising arena to do it is through youth service organizations, things like the Y's and the Boys and Girls Clubs and the camp movement, uh, and both having this done in these organizations, but also you know, having jamborees where the Methodist camp and the Jewish camp and, and the Muslim camp come together for one event to have young people get to know one another. And you know, sustained dialogue is the best, but I'll also take a once a year commitment if that's the best I can get. I also, just to add to what Meryl said, I also think that we need to have a societal shift uh, and teach our children emotional intelligence and literacy. And, um, and I think maybe that starts with us being vulnerable to our children uh, so that they can feel vulnerable, uh, have the opportunity to feel vulnerable with us. You know, I think as adults, we act like superheroes all the time, um, that we have all the answers when dealing with our children. And the truth is, is we learn from our children. And I think we need to show them that we can be vulnerable to them uh, so that you know, they can grow up being able to share their feelings, talk about their insecurities um, and uncertainty. And I think that that you know, would be a good. And maybe it's as easy as taking your young children to eat ethnic food so that they can grow up not afraid of ethnic food and they might not be afraid of ethnic people. Food diplomacy. Yes, there you yeah. go. <laughs> uh, my, my good friend Brigula Skoda from the University of Southern California, who's on our distinguished panel, says that we often ask young people to do things that we're not willing to do ourselves as adults. And so I affirm everything you said, Merle, but I think we need to do that as well, You know, which is make sure that we understand the experience of somebody who's different, because we've asked them, what is that experience? Um, I want to kind of shift a little bit to talking about uh, young people and vulnerabilities. So we've talked about the Muslim ban and maybe this kind of broader you know, feeling we all have that hate crimes are increasing and that this is a less safe place to be if you're, if you're other, I'll leave it at that. Um, Farhan and I were at a gathering um, a month or so ago with uh, Muslim, some Muslim nonprofit leaders and one of our young religious leaders who has a huge following of young Muslims said he got a call the week before two calls from young people in, in duress who ended up committing suicide. And so we know that there's this like mental health crisis that's not being addressed um, and that the needs are vast. And I think um, what I would like to hear from each of you, Christian and Farhan, are um, what are those vulnerabilities? Like how do we look at young people? You know, and I think you both have different but similar probably perspectives on that. What, are, what is the work you're doing to address some of those needs? 
How do we give young people agency in a climate like this? Um, because I think that's a really important tool uh, to go with the social intelligence. And so as we all deal with it, you know, like what do we, what do, we do with our young people who are dealing with it in a, in a more maybe direct way? Yeah. We can start with you, Fran. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, the mental health crisis is real and it's, it's, it's a part of also of a national conversation that we're having in the country as well, but it also impacts our marginalized communities even more. Um, I'll just give you a story about my sister. Um, she was in middle school in a, in, a, in, a, you know, in, a, in a population that wasn't very diverse. And the teacher was teaching a class on history and asked the students, so let's talk about how Muslims commit suicide and let's act it out in the class. And asked the students, so the students put on their backpacks and started yelling Allahu Akbar and started doing that. And my sister who was I think nine or 10 at that age the only girl wearing a scarf, suddenly was put into a position where she not only had to deal with the bullying that was happening uh, in her classroom from her classmates, but also from the teachers. And when I look back and I look at some of the stats that have come out about this uh, on a national level, we're finding that this is not only an issue with uh, students, uh, you know, peer-to-peer -peer bullying, but it's also the teachers play an important role, so helping them uh, understand how to unpack diversity and how to have conversations with sensitivity you know, is extremely important. On the mental health side, um, you know, we live in, in D.C. and in Virginia. Uh, a 15-year-old girl was murdered in the morning just a few months ago. Um, and when she lost her life, you know, we needed a whole group of counselors to help the students that were grieving and to unpack uh, what just happened. And what we realized in that instance is that this was not just an isolated incident of, of some youth in that neighborhood. The entire country was facing that entire conversation. Kids who were younger, you know, the ages, were trying to ask themselves, do we belong? What's going to happen to us? Is it safe for us to go to school? Is it safe for us to hang out in places? This was like they went to a, a IHOP for breakfast and stuff. So uh, the mental health crisis is real and we're trying to galvanize resources and people to play a more important role around this mental health work to help students have uh, conversations and to feel a sense of belonging and uh, you know, to <coughs> dwell into some of these very difficult questions um, and, and, and express their emotions and not just young people, young adults, people working in this space. It's, it's really a need. Yeah, mental health uh, is such a, a critical component. Under, having a good foundation of an understanding of mental health is such a critical component of the work that I do. Uh, because 70% of the people that I work with to help them disengage from extremism um, have mental health issues, mental health disorders. Um, and that's not necessarily because they're more prone to extremist uh, rhetoric uh, to become radicalized, but that's because they're being targeted. Um, Extremists are actively recruiting people in traditional safe places online. Can you talk about that a little yeah. bit? Yeah. So, uh, you know, a couple, about two years ago, I started seeing a trend of uh, propaganda showing up in um, depression forums online, autism forums, schizophrenia forums, uh, gaming forums, um, places where they know that marginalized individuals might be. Uh, people that don't have social connections uh, who might be looking for acceptance. And then they feed them with, you know, kind of a, a propaganda line, a kind of a gateway drug to pull them in to feel that acceptance. And then they drop the bomb on them uh, to really, uh, you know, to, to, to really radicalize them. Uh, and they have nothing to go back to at that point because they've already cut ties with everything else. Um, this is a new trend. I don't think that the psychology industry is aware fully of it. Uh, but also another component that for me is troubling is that uh, mental health professionals are, are scared, uh, at least the ones I've talked to, are scared to deal with what they consider ideological people. Uh, and what I try to explain to them is, is this isn't an ideological problem. I think that ideology and dogma uh, rarely radicalizes people. Let me explain that. Uh, it is the permission slip to be angry, to be violent, but radicalization happens way before that. It starts with trauma. It starts with uh, grievance. It starts with uh, marginalization. And then eventually people find a place to belong to express the anger. Um, and I think what psychologists and mental health professionals need to understand is this isn't 
I'm not asking them to engage in an ideological discussion. I'm, I'm asking them to treat the child, not the monster. Uh, and the child can be six or 60, uh, because I do believe that all, that, all those potholes, that trauma, uh, really stems from, from youth. And can I add that in one of the essays that in, it's in, our, in our book, um, there was a discussion that some of the people polled who had been r radicalized, they said they could have been radicalized either to a form of right-wing extremism or to a form of jihadi extremism, that it was, it, it, it was sort of up for grabs. Mm -hmm. It was the grievance that was looking for a place to situate. It was uh, the acceptance, the belonging to something. To something that, bigger, yeah. to something bigger than you are. And, and without positive models, they went to negative models. Absolutely, and I've actually seen that. I've seen neo-Nazi skinheads become you know, ISIS supporters. I've seen uh, you know, all crossover, active shooters, uh, far-right groups, uh, Islamist uh, extremist groups, and even um, cults. I mean, it really, the draw is the same. It's that search for identity, community, and purpose, um, where people at first think they're on a humanitarian crusade, um, because now they have people they trust, sometimes for the first time in their lives. And when they finally realize, if they're lucky enough to realize that this is a self-destructive and a destructive path, they really have cut off all the connections to humanity, to their families, to their friends, uh, and they really have nothing to go back to, so sometimes it's easier to just go deeper in. Can you talk about the path to rehabilitation? What does that look like? I do a lot of listening when it comes to rehabilitation. I don't engage uh, ideologically, I don't debate, I don't argue, uh, partly because I know if I would have been on the other side and somebody tried to tell me that I was wrong, it would have pushed me further away. Uh, so I do a lot of listening for those potholes, and then I fill them in. And what I've found is when I make, help people become more uh, resilient, uh, and that means job training, education, mental health therapy, uh, tattoo removal, whatever it, it, that person needs to feel more whole, um, they have less of a reason to judge the other. Because now they're more accountable, they're more equipped to deal with life, they understand themselves a little bit better. Um, but I, you know, I do challenge them ideologically in a compassionate way. I will introduce them to the people they think that they hate because nine and a half times out of 10, they've never ever in their lives had a meaningful uh, discussion, interaction with those folks. So that kind of closes the loop on that and it destroys the demonization that happens in their head and replaces it with humanization. You're tuned into Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's conversation was held at the 2018 Aspen Ideas Festival. Planning for the 2019 festival is already underway, and if you'd like to experience it on the ground, mark your calendars. Passes go on sale November 14th. You can learn more about the festival on our website, aspenideas.org. Here's the rest of today's discussion. Zenat Rahman. A great segue back to kind of talking about religious pluralism a little bit, Meryl. And as I look in the audience, we have NGO leaders, business leaders, medical health professionals. Um, can you talk about this concept of religious pluralism being a thick versus thin concept? And what can you know our allies in the audience do? Um, sure. Action steps. Sure. So, um, so, so tolerance is a, a thin concept. We talk, we talk about religious tolerance. Well, tolerance is what I do to my crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. You know, I tolerate the, the nutty things that he says at the Thanksgiving table. Pluralism is a thick concept, and by that I mean that it, it involves appreciative understanding and, and knowledge uh, of the other. And pluralism goes back all the way to the days of the founder. George Washington's letter to the Turo congregation said it not by the grace of one that they should tolerate the other, uh, but that every man should sit under his vine and fig tree. In other words, that, that there wasn't going to be one favored class and one class that was disfavored, that in America, we all were going to be at the same level when it came to religious exercise. Um, so so how, how, what do we do about that? So it needs to go on at every level, right? We need to have these, these interactions, encounters, or sustained dialogue at every level. And that can start 
with little kids, you know, food diplomacy is great. Um, I've told Zena this story that my, when my children were in nursery school, I fried more latkes than I want to remember, and I hate latkes, but they were the only Jewish kids in the class, and so frying latkes I did. And so that can go on with little kids, and it can go on in the schools, and it can go on in, in after-school programs. Um, and communities need to make commitments. That means if you're, if you're part of a church or if you're part of a synagogue or if you're part of a mosque, you can ask your pastor, you can ask your uh, committees, your sisterhood, your brotherhood, do one thing each year. Make a commitment to do something each year that's going to forward this. My husband and I have made a commitment we do with, with a, a group, of, an interfaith group, an iftar every year that brings together people from our community, which admittedly is an elite community. We think that it does some good because it brings people together who would not ordinarily be in conversation with each other. And over the 10 years that it's been going on, we've developed some really good relationships and people have each other's back. They are there for each other in crisis, but they are also there for each other in building. But this can go on in any community, and it should go on in communities across the country. And so that's what my ask to all of you is to think about how can you bring this into your community. And it's not necessarily a major commitment, although for some people it is a major commitment. Um, but it's a commitment that each of us need to make because if we're going to, in 30 years, have the country that we recognize and we love, it's going to have to be intentional. Sandra Day O'Connor, who is one of the lifetime trustees of this, says that civic education is not in the DNA. It has to be taught to each generation. We are all responsible for making sure that young people, the next generation, understands that this is a major commitment in this country. Yeah, I think... Uh, you know, absolutely uh, well, yes to everything Meryl mentioned. Um, there are a couple of things you have to realize. Number one, that we're not starting from a point of neutrality. Um, studies have shown, there was a study that came out called Fear Inc., where $42 million is spent every year trying to stroke fear, create vitriol, and hate against communities, in this, in this specific example, Muslim communities. Um, so when there's such an active effort to divide people and Studies have shown us that as the election cycle builds up, more, you know, the, the rhetoric just goes up even more. It gets even worse. So when there's such an active, um, uh, you know, process of vilifying and dividing, we have to take the same active measures on individual, societal, and communal levels to tackle some of those challenges. Um, I feel like all of us have, uh, you know, our own sphere of influence, and so between the um, individual power, privilege, and your cell phones. Um, <laughs> other tools to use. But um, between you know, the platforms of power, privilege, and the platforms Persistent. that you have to yourself, it's really important to use those in, in positive ways. Um, I can give you examples you know, uh, of uh, partnerships that are happening. The publication that Meryl just pointed to has some really great examples of initiatives that are taking place across the country. So opportunity number one is to see if there's ways of you plugging into those initiatives directly. Um, if you go to a place of worship, is there a way to bring people from other communities to come and talk about their experiences? If you are at a workplace, there are a lot of diversity inclusion initiatives and we've been seeing great partnerships with people in the private sector now using their companies and their platforms to see how, you know, identity, um, inclusion, uh, and standing up for some of the you know, things that we agree on, uh, you know, uh, better understanding, can be further promoted. Um, there's a specific initiative that you know, comes to mind that we all are familiar with, which is um, an Imam, Imam Majid, has partnered with an evangelical uh, pastor, Pastor Bob Roberts. And they came together, and they have powerful stories uh, and I feel like all of us have those stories ourselves. And they've partnered up and started to go to different churches across the country. And it's a fascinating dynamic duo to go see and to see how you know, they can completely dismantle some of the prejudice that, that exists. You see the same thing happening out within Muslim and Jewish communities with the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom, where Muslim and Jewish women are partnering and opening up spaces and book clubs and other ways of sort of sharing those stories. So I think more active measures that bring us together, uh, open the door for storytelling, open the door for us to get together, uh, will really go a long way. 
can I interject here? This is very labor-intensive work. Yeah, two-finger intervention. It's very labor-intensive work. Um, what Christian does, I mean, it takes an, an, a large number of hours of your time mm -hmm. to do a successful intervention. Years. So it really is going to require an investment of resources. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems that we have encountered in this sector is that there's really a reluctance in the philanthropic community mm -hmm. to talk about religion. Um, there, there's a kind of an allergy to, to anything where we, we talk about religion. And in part, this actually comes out of the First Amendment Commitment, the notion that you know, religion is private, it's separate. But really, it can't be anymore. You know, we really have to start being willing to engage with that. And also, there are a lot of negative stereotypes about religion. So you know, if, if I say a conservative evangelical, a lot of people in this room are going to have a stereotype. But we have successfully engaged with people who are in the conservative evangelical community who have become really good allies to it. And there are many, many people in this room who will have stereotypes about what does it mean to be a Muslim. And we talk about the intra-faith tension. And, and there's an intra-faith tension, too. Um, and there is an effort within with people like Imam Majid and uh, the Marrakesh Initiative to, to develop a, a, a dialogue within Islam to talk about what are truly Muslim values. So this work is going on around the world, but we have a very flat understanding of it in this country. Yeah. I mean, the philanthropic piece, if I could just add in, it, you know, there just needs to be more resources that are put to the table uh, to, to fund these initiatives, not just from the foundation. Um, you know, I feel the private sector has a role to play in this, uh, and individuals have a role to play, and there's numerous opportunities if you look for them. You know, I, the work that I do is very practical. I work face-to-face -face with people, and I think, you know, at one time we had a mandatory draft. I don't, I'm not recommending we do that, but maybe mandatory civil service, mm -hmm. uh, I think would be really a good idea to... You got the applause line. Huh? You got the applause line. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, you know, I, I, maybe it's it's things like you know, as police officers are going through training, they have to go live in the community for a month with a family before they serve that community. It's it's about understanding. It's about removing that fear, and I think it's a culture shift that we need to make. Um, you know, I don't like the word tolerance. To me, that's a kind of a I don't want to tolerate anybody. I want to include them, uh, and we should I think be talking about ways that. Um, that these in, interfaith uh, communities are the same versus how they're different. Uh, you know, I think that I've sat with Holocaust deniers and Holocaust survivors. I've sat with Islamophobes and imams, and I can tell you that every time, and I've done it hundreds of times, people walk away with a different understanding and a different perspective because they've had that one-on-one -on -one communication and not, you know, Facebook to Facebook or not group to group. I think things change one-on-one, -on -one, but we do need a culture shift where um, we teach our young people and our adults um, that uh, we really need, we're all part of a machine and when one part breaks down uh, or one part is missing, the machine doesn't work so well. I think um, I want to shift to questions from the audience. I want to make three quick points, three takeaways before we do that. I think the first thing is that um, Dialogue and encounter is a learned skill, so it's actually, as Meryl said, it takes time, but it's also something that we shouldn't assume we all know um, or feel bad if we don't, and, and the, which relates to number two, which is that there are many resources already out there. There's people in the audience, um, Interfaith Youth Corps, others who have these resources already, so you're not starting from scratch in doing this work. Um, and Zenat, I just want to say, racism is also a learned skill, and if we're already putting time into teaching racism, right. The shift to teaching compassion and empathy shouldn't be very hard. Right. And the third point came up in Merrill's last panel, which is we don't have to agree on everything. Right? We have to find the common ground in the places that we do agree um, and, and hear from somebody what their point of view is, not just assume that we know because of what their you know, religious tag is, um, and find those places that we can work together. And it is, it's not easy, and it's not sexy. As Merrill and I often talk about, this is a medium, long-term kind of endeavor that will be a generational thing, and we're a small part of it, um, but we all kind of need to be on board in order for it to be effective. Um, I'd like to move to questions from the audience. There's a mic back there, so wait till you get the mic. I, I have a question. You know, we talked about what's happening now, but what changed? Because the reality is, 
not to get political, but of course I'll get political. Trump is a symptom of something else, I think. So is this just is the world just effectively going to go through tribalism cycles? Or what changed in our whole cultural ecosystem that's allowed all of this to ramp up? Because something happened. Is it income inequality? So I'm really curious, stepping back, what you all see was the big, the, the differentiator that pushed things farther. Well, I think it all, all, always existed. It never, you know, did not exist. Uh, you know, we've had 250 years of various degrees of, you know, white supremacy and racism. And, and while we're making progress, uh, you know, we're not we're not quite living up to the ideals of uh, of what the founding fathers hopefully had in mind. Uh, I think we'll get there. Um, I think uncertainty is driving, uh, and and rhetoric is driving a lot of it. We've we're living in a time when it's kind of normalized to say these types of hateful things where uh, you know, people feel emboldened by the fact that um, you know, our, our political leaders are, are, are making these kinds of statements. Um, you know, we tr we're supposed to trust our political leaders, so I, I don't blame people for kind of following blindly, but at the same time, you know, we have to think critically about if that's the kind of America that we want to live in. Um, you know, young people are struggling. I think we're failing young people, to be honest. You know, it's, it's difficult to go to, to college. It's almost impossible for people to afford it. Uh, it's almost impossible if you make good money to be able to afford it, to send your kid to a good school. There are neighbor, I come from Chicago, there are neighborhoods that don't have services that we enjoy. They don't have public transportation or grocery stores or. I'm from five zip codes where everything is, yeah. yeah, it's where it's happening. Yeah, so I mean, I think that, it, <laughs> You know, I think resentment from certain parts of the white community that feel something is being taken away from them right now is a, is a, is a complete falsehood. Nothing is being taken away. Things are finally equalizing for some communities that have not had that equality. And it's not taking away anything. It's, it's just that we're now in, hopefully moving to a place where we can enjoy um, you know, equal justice. Do you guys want to weigh in on that quickly? I, I, I want to weigh in quickly. Our, 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 new, uh, our new colleague, David Brooks, the esteemed writer, um, talks about the loss of institutions. And, you know, all institutions have, have been questioned and have been devalued, you know, whether it's family or church or uh, political institutions. There's a lack of trust across the board. So to the extent that we talk about feeling like you're part of something larger than yourself, uh, there are very few pieces, places that young people can go now that give them a sense of being part of something that is larger than themselves. I mean, Christian became some, part of something at 14 larger than himself. I was fortunate. Uh, I kind of had the opposite experience. I became part of the student struggle for Soviet Jewry. And we stood outside of the, what was in the Soviet embassy, you know, with placards of people who were in jail. And I felt, I felt great. I was part of something bigger than myself, you know. Um, and it, it's hard for young people to have the, that sense of belonging to something now in a positive way. I think I'd just also add, like, you know, you, I've sat through many gatherings where we've been trying to deconstruct what is the root cause of why this is happening. And people have now been referencing Putnam's new book that's coming out and his work on this issue of looking at all the different root causes that one can put together. What's the name of the book? I'm not sure. Uh, Allison, you know? Um, but what we're finding is that even if you overlay all these different root causes, uh, the problem is that some of these root causes existed. Uh, now it's just coming out more in the public and, and, you know, and it's becoming more um, visible in many ways. The communities that have been impacted have had these challenges for a long time, um, but now it's out there in the open and it's, it's getting an endorsement. Um, so, so that's you know sort of the piece. But I also feel like going back to David Brooks's comment, uh, you know, things about this is that a more localized approach on taking some of these things on is is, is appropriate. Um, it becomes very paralyzing when you look at these national issues and you start reading the news every day. But if all of us can have a more localized approach of saying, okay, what's within our own sphere of what we can do, um, I feel like that is going to create some sort of an impact and change. Yeah, and to that point, I mean, local news has gone away. Yeah. I mean, we've lost a lot of that. My worry is that we go too far that way and then create these bubbles for ourselves. So I think there needs to be a good balance. 
Did you have a question for the gentleman in the blue? Uh, first of all, thank you all. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to have my arm broken and ribs broken over something or be face-to-face -face with somebody who was a Nazi or to get eight New Yorkers to agree on anything. <laughs> so my question has to do with how you sustain yourselves in those moments where it is almost too much. Because in a way, you're first responders. I mean, you guys are doing the wet work here. How do you keep going when it really gets tough? Uh, Self-care is, is a really important part of my work, and I'm not very good at it, to be quite honest. Uh, and that's partly because of bandwidth. I would also say that compassion fatigue is, is a real thing. <laughs> and I have to learn when to step away. But part of it is surrounding myself with you know, very good, very positive people, very diverse people who kind of feed my energy. Yeah, I would also just uh, you know, add to that that um, not good at self-care, but faith and family plays a role in sustaining my life is here and uh, really great partner in that. Uh, but I think also what we need to look for is a positive deviance. There are so many, you know, as a foundation uh, you know, member right now, we get grant applications of everything that's going wrong in the country and that needs to be supported. But we're also seeing great strides of positivity and positive deviance of things that are happening that are really, really good in the country. And so highlighting those examples, we, you know, organizing places where you can highlight positive stories of resilience, of, of engagement, of things that are happening. I mean, this forum being one of them, that I think really helps in sustaining and keeping people going for the next day. How do you account for the embrace of so much of the evangelical community into these really divisive things that are going on? I know there are voices like Jim Wallace who have spoken up against it, but it is confounding to me the embrace of so much of the evangelical community. Is it racism, tribalism, fear? I think we have to hold our religious leaders accountable. Congregations need to step up. If they hear their religious leaders saying something that is intolerant or too extreme, they need to voice that because they're human beings too. They're not gods and they make mistakes, sometimes driven by ego. Uh, and they need to be called out for that and held accountable. With respect to the, the question about the evangelical movement, so. Um, uh, there are a lot of people who are deeply troubled by it, and we're seeing the rise now in, uh, amongst evangelicals of something called the Jesus Movement, which is not asking the question, what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus say? Um, and, um, and, and kind of recovering Christianity for the Christians. And so that's a positive development that has grown out of this very troubling development. Thank you so much for your thoughts today. My question was, oftentimes we see the work of pluralism or the work of interfaith cooperation or building interfaith relationships kind of being put away in the soft work, um, if, if, if I may call it that, which is you know nice to have but not necessary. And I think we're in, the, in a space right now where it is basically pivotal for us to be doing this work, both in professional spaces and in our personal lives. And I'm kind of wondering if you can speak to a little bit about how this may live out in um, how do we do it in sort of non-traditional interfaith spaces? So we'd love to hear about what that looks like for you all. I think on the question of inclusion, and I, and I hope I understood the question properly, but sometimes seeing inclusion in this work as soft work, I also feel there's a business case to be made. I remember reading business case studies from Harvard Business School about the economic benefit of working towards inclusion uh, and how that leads to better ideas, better uh, you know, solutions and you know, economic growth. Kellogg's work, uh, focuses on racial equity from, again, from a business lens. And I feel like those are other ways of also tackling and looking at these issues. Um, with respect to the question about inclusion, so um, Bob Roberts, who is Imam Majid's uh, partner in the shoulder to shoulder work, um, is uh, he has termed, uh, coined this term glocal, which is both global and local at the same time because there is this dialectic that goes on, um, which is one of the reasons why, to me, the Muslim ban is very troubling because people draw conclusions who are on the other side of the world about who we are and whether they want to invest with us or whether they want to come here or um, whether they want their kids to come to school here, which is only a win-win for us when kids have come in under these various visa waiver programs and then they go back then we get friends around the world, and that's a good thing for us. So um, to the extent that we are closing that off, um, that's, gonna, that's a very negative development. But it also says something about who, who, is, who, are, who is us, 
right? And so there's a business case to be made about that. There's a citizenship case to be made about that. So it's very short-sighted not to be thinking in terms of that inclusion. So um, it's it's not the soft stuff. I, I you know, I, I, I've heard about that too. And one of the things that we struggle with a little bit internally in the Aspen Institute is where you seat this work, you know. Um, I wanted to do it, so it's seated here, but honestly, I think that it should be spread across the Institute in a lot of different programs. A lot of different programs have something to do. And I mean, and that, that goes for institutions other than the Aspen Institute. And if I can say one thing related to that, uh, Jen, and to your question, I think it's that um, systems change and social change kind of happens one person at a time. But I'm struck by, we met with, Marilyn and I met with somebody yesterday who's the head of a large foundation. And over the years, they've so kind of bought into this model of interfaith engagement that it streams across all of their programs, whether environment, whether end-of-life care. And that one person's change of thinking is going to change the strategic plan of that institution that will then impact hundreds of people. And so I think, like, we like to think at scale, and what does this look like on the meta level? Actually, it's giving one person the tools they need to go make the case, whether it's to their CSR board, you know, their CSR folks in business, or to their church, or to their mosque, or to their neighbor. I mean, like, that's, let's not discount that, you know. And with that, we're out of time. So thank you all for being here. We really appreciate it. Christian Pigiolini left the white supremacist movement two decades ago. Now he helps others counter racism and violent extremism with organizations like Life After Hate and the Free Radicals Project. Farhan Latif runs the El Hebri Foundation, a philanthropic organization that equips Muslim leaders to build inclusive communities. Zinat Rahman is a former diplomat who now works at the Aspen Institute. She's the project director of the Inclusive America Project. Meryl Chertoff leads the Institute's Justice and Society program. Their conversation was held in Aspen, Colorado in June. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.